Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Good morning, church. So good to see you and just want to say thank you once again to those of you who were able to be here last Tuesday for the memorial for my mother and also for all of you who tuned in. I was very surprised at the number of views of the memorial. She deserved it and I'm grateful for it and I love the idea that she and I are taking communion together today according to Hebrews chapter 12. And that's a lovely thought indeed. Also, oh, I was about to leap into sermon there, but I wanted one more thing here. We gathered at one of our friends' house, many of us at the soundstage, this last Friday. If you have Christmas gatherings with other Our Safe Harbor people, just even if it's just you know two, three, four, whatever there are, uh, we'd love to have a picture of it. We would enjoy that very much. And if you have a video that you want to send with it, either just a video of the people there, or if you want to sing us a song or say hello, we would love that too. And you can let us know you've got that, uh, those pictures, and they're ready to come just by writing. You can write me directly, patrick at rsafeharbor.com, or you can write the team that actually knows what to do with the pictures, uh, which is info at rsafeharbor.com. But... You are part of us. Uh, We are a network of house churches that are one large community. So we'd love to know what you do. And if you're stuck on your own and you don't want to be, get in touch with us so that we can talk to you and be a part of your day and a part of your life. That's what we we would love to do that. If you're on your own and you want to be, there you are. Uh, You've succeeded. Uh, At the last two weeks, we have looked at major lengthy stories in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and how they were reflected in the life of Christ or to make it more accurate, the life of Christ was reflected in their lives with so many connections. And it's astounded some of you because you've written in about how similar the story of Moses is to Jesus. The story of Joseph is to Jesus. We're going to do a little different today because it's not the only way the Bible does this. It is a collection of stories that's all about one story, the story of our Messiah. But you see, there's another way to tell stories. And that's what we want to talk about. For the last 2,000 years, for most of it, people did not read these stories because they didn't have the book. If you'll remember, we talked about this probably over a year ago, but it wasn't until the 1600s that people were able to see Bibles on a regular basis. So for a very long time, they weren't there. The reason is, well, illiteracy was certainly an issue, but the lack of available books, even when printing presses were where you know, Gutenberg and the like, movable type, and were able to set and print books, it was a very expensive process. And most people never had the time or the money to read or preserve any books. Rich people, kings, 
sometimes would brag that they had 20 books. And people were in awe of that ability to have that kind of knowledge that right there. And most people just stare at it. And churches for the longest time, when they had a Bible, there would be one, and it would be a big one, and it would be on a pulpit, and it would be chained to the pulpit so that it would not be stolen. These were so precious. So how did people get the stories? Well, it's a little hard to get all of the intricacies of a story from a sermon, but they got it from songs too. Songs were full of theology. Songs were were deep rivers of theology. But they also had plays. They would do plays at different times of the year. And some of the plays were the same thing always over and over again. But these holy plays, others had stained glass. Others had storytellers that would come and tell the stories. There were feast days. And this is something I think that we, we have missed. While there is no question that there were a whole lot of saint days for saints that didn't actually live, and they, the, the Catholics have actually called the list of saints rather harshly to try to get back to just historical ones. The fact is, when life was run by the religious calendar, you had a, as Greg would put it, a reminder every year, this is the story of this, this is the story of that. And you're able to celebrate different aspects of the story of Jesus as reflected by Hebrew scriptures or the lives of the saints. In fact, even the bells during the day to ring the morning and ring the afternoon, they were bells of prayer. You were supposed to remember, now it is time for this prayer. Now it is time for that prayer. We have lost something in that, in the rush through our days and the staring at our devices. But... The story still gets out there, doesn't it? There were, um, they would tell the stories and then they would try to put them in context. If you go to great cathedrals, you, the story starts in the back. And as you move toward the front, the saints become more important. And then all of a sudden you come upon the apostles. And then you get to the, the front. And if you'll notice, in almost all of these, there will be three big windows. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some of them, the one in the middle will be a little bit bigger. Others insist on them all being the same size, according to their version of Trinity. And it was lovely because you you heard stories in context, except they didn't understand archaeology. They did not know what things look like in Jesus' time. So when you see a medieval painting, of let's say the fall of Jericho, it looks like a medieval castle and everybody's wearing armor. Well, that's just because they didn't know but they knew the story. Churches that could afford it even did more. They had God's story in the columns, in the panels, in the floors. If you've been to Europe, you've seen that as well. Everywhere you look, you got glimpses of the great story. One of the greatest examples of this has to be the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You can buy a book on this or go online and study that painting for what? Months? And still discover how Michelangelo was bringing the story to the center. Well, some of those stories in Hebrew scriptures function in that way. They point us toward Jesus, always toward Jesus, forever toward Jesus. But they do it with glimpses, triptychs, a short story or 
even a scary one. So we're going to start with an easy one, a scary one. In Exodus chapter 12, God had sent a series of plagues against Egypt. Now here's something which they knew, which we don't tend to know. Every one of the plagues of Egypt was against an Egyptian god. They worshipped the sun, so God blotted it it out. They worshipped the ground, so he made it seem to crawl with insects. They worshipped cattle, so God gave them disease. And again, you might say, well, what about frogs? The frog-headed god Heket was the god of the midwives who had been told to kill the Hebrew boys. So it was a capital offense to kill a frog in Egypt. So God said, you like frogs? I got your frogs. And flooded them with it where they couldn't get away from killing frogs because they were all over them. All like this. Until finally God brought them to the last, the last plague. He'd given them every chance to release the Israelites from slavery. He'd given them every chance to treat his chosen people with grace, dignity, and allow them to go free. But Pharaoh resisted each and every one of these because Pharaoh, you see, was a greater God in his belief and in the theology of the time. He was the top God. He was above the God of the sun or the God of the Nile or any of these others. So God was prepared to unleash the worst, the worst plague of all, going for the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn. Firstborns were super important to them. Firstborn in a family was, had to survive. If they did not, yes, you, you might have spare inheritors there. But they never felt secure because if the gods, in their mind, killed the firstborn, then how safe would they be? And this was also true of their cattle and of their beasts. And, and so God said, I'm going to take the firstborn. It is a scary, scary God uh, rather, a story. And, and God is going to bring it down on them to the point where it really does work. The pharaohs that came after erased the stories of these pharaohs. And the pharaohs that came after erased their stories. Their firstborn, their lineage erased. Archaeologists will even be able to point toward the, the steles or the steels, the big columns and the like, where future pharaohs carved out the stories of the old and put their name on the, on the portrait or on a hieroglyphic. But the night before the angel of death was unleashed upon Egypt, God told the Israelites to select a male lamb that was perfect without blemish. It was to be killed without breaking any of its bones. You might ask why? Well, we'll get to that. And then some of its blood was to be placed upon the top and side of the doors. Just Every door into the house, and generally speaking, there was only the one. You put blood on both sides and at the top. And when the blood was seen by the destroying angel, they would not enter that home to kill the firstborn. They would pass over it to move to the next. The Passover was started that night. A meal that you came together under the protection of the blood and the angel of death would pass by. The Jews celebrated it every year from that moment all the way up through Jesus, and they still do celebrate it to this day. When Jesus came, John the Baptist was preaching, and he was baptizing by the River Jordan. There was a road that went right by where John the Baptist was. 
that road would have been choked with pilgrims. Because you see, the Passover was about to come. And all the people from the outlying districts had to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they had to sacrifice a perfect sacrifice. And of course, the one that everybody wanted to sacrifice was the best one, a lamb. But getting a lamb from where you are to the temple is a difficult thing. As a person who's been around a lot of sheep, and um, and, and mainly in Scotland, but elsewhere, I can tell you, without shame, that sheep are not endowed with intelligence. They are designed from day one to try to kill themselves. And they will put themselves in the most horrible positions, and there's not a thing you can do about it. It's just that's what sheep do. So one, as a family would be traveled, there would be one phrase you would hear very, very frequently. You would hear fathers and mothers instructing the children, watch the lamb. Watch the lamb. And that is all going on noisily while John the Baptist is also working with people. And he looks up and sees Jesus. And he says, John 1, 29, behold the lamb. And everybody would have gasped. Their jaws would have dropped. Because they know what that means. The one who's about to die. The one who's about to sacrifice. And you're pointing at a person. 1 Peter 1.19, he was without blemish. John 19.33, he died crucified without breaking a bone. And then Hebrews 9.12, his blood continues to save countless millions of people. And then one of my favorite stories, and I, I did not build time into the lesson today to really do it any, uh, any justice. But do yourself a favor. Read Revelation chapter 4 and 5 today. Just do it. before ad, This is Advent. But before Christmas Eve, read Revelation 4 and 5. Because you walk in to this great throne room of God. And it is described in meticulous detail. But symbols. They're all symbols. And as you're in there in awe, there is, there's a book. It is the future of faith. It is future of the people. The people God loves. And the angels are crying out. Who can open the book? Now they've been able to do stuff before. But the angels can't open this. It goes silent. And John the revelator. Begins to despair. And weep. No one can open the book. And then in chapter 5. The central focus of all the worship. Is when Christ stands up. But when John looks, he doesn't see Christ. He sees a lamb that has been slaughtered. Stand up, walk over, and open the book. We have a conquering king who comes to us as a slaughtered lamb. And that makes no sense unless you know Exodus 12. When God sees the blood, he will pass over. The angel of death has no interest in us. The destroyer has no interest in us. And even if they did, they have no power to touch us because of the blood. How about another simple, short story? Another panel of stained glass or another triptych that leads us to the big display up front. And that's in Genesis 28. We're going to mention this again next week 
a little bit more detail, but in a different context. In Genesis 28, Jacob is a con man. He has been since before he was born. He grabbed, remember, the heel of his elder brother in the womb. And frankly, you have to admire that sort of consistency you know, in a, in a person maintaining his character that well through life. But he had conned the wrong person now, and Esau's coming for him. And Esau's big and hairy and a hunter and athletic, and Jacob is all of those things not. So he runs. He gets so exhausted, he lays down to sleep, and he sees a stairway to heaven. I know most of us were told it was a ladder, but if you know newer versions, call it a stairway, because that's what it was. And I find that to be very cool that God mentions the stairway to heaven long before Led Zeppelin. And, and, and you can read Genesis 28 and about the length of time that story, that song takes anyway. He lays, he lays down to sleep and he sees a stairway. Now on the stairway, angels are going up and down. They are reporting to heaven and getting their orders and coming back down to earth. And then we hear nothing about it. Until John 1. In John 1, 51, here comes Nathaniel, a friend of Philip. Now, Nathaniel's a very honest man. We don't know much about him, but we do know he was a very honest man and that his honest search and honest questions um, impressed Jesus. And so they had a good talk. In fact, he's so impressed with Jesus, he declares that he is indeed the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, one day, you will see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on me. He was the stairway that Jacob saw. Once again, the stories are his story. More next week on that. No one can read Isaiah 53 without being stunned at the parallels there with Jesus' life. But we have to be very honest about this. When the people who read Isaiah 53 back in the day read it, they didn't know the life of Jesus Christ. They were looking for a, a Messiah that would still be a conqueror, that would still be a king, that would still you know, save his people and reestablish the borders of the kingdom of David, maybe even pushing it along, Sol Solomon's borders and beyond. But then the suffering servant is said to come. Please don't read ahead. When we read the Bible, we tend to read ahead. We'll say, Isaiah 53, that's the life of Christ. And we are correct. But that's because we are past the life of Christ. These people still had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before there'd be a baby born in Bethlehem. They were looking for a suffering servant who would come and do these things. But they didn't know who he would be. They did not understand the story. They just knew bits of it. And then Jesus comes. And read Isaiah 53 in Advent as well. You will see how he perfectly fits. They didn't see it. We get to. And the apostles saw it. And they knew Isaiah. Isaiah has always been a very, very popular book for for people that want to understand the times in which we live, when you read Isaiah, you'll very often think that you're reading headlines of today. By the way, the prisoners that we serve, especially in Louisiana State Penitentiary, many of them have pretty much memorized Isaiah. 
Isaiah and the Psalms seem to be what they really grasp more than anything. But that's a short one. We've, uh, we need to see something else. And we've talked about it before. It's a really strange one. In the book of Numbers 21, God was so fed up. You've heard this the last two weeks. He was so fed up with the constant complaining. God does not like constant complaining. God does not like people who show up so they can find something to criticize. He doesn't care for that at all. And he got so tired of it that he sent serpents among the people. If you were bitten, you would die. And as I brought up last week, Moses was told by God to do something which violated everything in Moses' conscience. Build a bronze serpent, stick it up there. You're not allowed to make an image of a living thing. God said, do it. So pay attention. Put it up on a staff, and if people come to it and see it after they've been bitten, they will live. In John 3, 14, Jesus said he was that serpent. He was the one lifted up. The cross wasn't the first time Jesus appeared high above the people. In fact, he said, if you look, if you, all men, all men will come unto me if I be lifted up. And that whole purpose of lifting up Jesus, our safe harbor, we are not lift, we're not lifting up denominationalism. We're not lifting up politics. We are not lifting up ways to divide. We are saying, just come to Jesus. We trust he will sort it out. We're not asking you to ever agree with what we do about everything. Because quite frankly, how would you know? How would you know what we're thinking? And how would we know what you're thinking? What we say is just come to Jesus. He is the Savior. Jesus was hanged on a tree like the serpent. He became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And those who put their trust to him and place their trust in him will be saved from the sting of death, Paul said. The story merges. 1 Corinthians 15, start around verse 55 through 57, if you want to just read a bit of that. But the last story is, to me, the most mysterious story. Because, frankly, it is the most mysterious story. I'm not the only one that thinks that way. And it, after, after I read this story and I go through it, I often want to ask, did anybody get the license plate of that spiritual event that just hit me and ran me over? My father told me a story that rattled him. And my father was very exclusivist. He, he truly believed if you didn't believe everything he believed, you would be lost for all eternity. And so he had a great distrust of anybody he didn't know already who agreed with him in all things. That's important. My father was down in Guyana in the jungles, and he and my son were pretty much on their own at this stage. He had already done a typical my father things. Um, he had asked one chief of a village if he could preach there, and the, the chief said no. My, so my dad's next question was, um, how big is your village and the guy said, well, the border is at basically a creek right through there. And so dad just walked across the creek and started preaching. I don't know how he lived that long either, but that's, that's a typical story of my father. Um, and in this particular story, he said, there was a man that came out of the jungle on his own. A white man, so he knew no native there. And he had a big Bible in the back. He had like a photographer's vest that has all the pockets, maybe a fisherman's with a big slot in the back with a big Bible. And he stopped and talked to dad for a while. 
And dad was blown away, didn't understand who he was, but dad wouldn't have said it. But you could tell he believed this guy is special and he's come from nowhere. And after he talked to dad just for a little bit, he turned and walked right back into the jungle. And so we talked for a while and he looked at me and said, do you know where I could get a vest like that? I'm going, dad, I don't think that's the lesson. I think, I think there might be another lesson there. And I know he did too, but he didn't want to talk about it. Abraham, we know Abraham. There might have been a Christophany. In other words, not a person, but really Jesus that came out of nowhere. No backstory, no genealogy, no wrapping up the story either. Melchizedek showed up. In Genesis 14, we know he was a king of Salem. Salem is Shalom. He is a king of peace, literally. And Abraham immediately knows. Now, he knows Yahweh. Abraham knows there is no God but Yahweh. God has made that very plain to him. Abraham goes down and worships Melchizedek, makes an offering, and Melchizedek blesses him. Abraham had been away from his gods, his past. He's moving toward an uncertain future. And all of a sudden, Melchizedek shows up and gives him a blessing. Pop quiz. Who would know Yahweh in this place and time? We, we don't know. We have no clue of any other Yahwehist or worshipers of God at that time, except for Abraham. And God had to go to Ur of the Chaldees to get him. Who is this? And yet, here's a priest a tri- uh, a, and a king. In Psalm 110, they speak of that. And they speak of the coming Messiah, saying, he will be like Melchizedek. He'll come out of nowhere. i got to tell you something. I, I reposted on Facebook a poem I wrote about eight years ago now called, He Sent a Baby. Um, nobody saw that coming. Nobody. Everybody thought God was going to march with angels. Everybody thought that there would be thunder and blood as God establishes, reestablishes his people in Jerusalem and pushes out their borders. Nobody expected a baby being born in a nowhere town like Bethlehem. He came out of nowhere. The book of Hebrews, by the way, makes it very plain that Melchizedek is a central figure in the movement of the stories from the Hebrew scriptures to Jesus. You can find it in, especially in chapters 6 and 7 of Hebrews. Fascinating chapters. And then in chapter 7 verse 3, the writer of Hebrews just brings it home for the people that are slow. And said he made the appearance as the son of God. I've had people ask, well if he showed up like that in the Old Testament, and wait till you see the next two weeks... Well, why has he stopped? Why do you think he has? We have nothing in scripture that says he has stopped. I've had people say, no, no, because the next coming is supposed to be the second coming. I think we've made it clear now. He was around more than you think. By the way, the second coming is just a phrase used in the New Testament. Rarely at that. It's usually just referred to as his return. 
Why would we think that we are exempt from what Hebrews refers to by saying, many of you have entertained angels unaware? Why would you think that all of the holiness is out of the world? I don't see that. In fact, I believe that would be a silly thing to think. The Bible is trying to tell us something. And sadly, we got distracted. I watched a, um, a thriller last night, my wife and I, off of British TV. We subscribed to that. And it was, uh, it was very well done. And there was a man that was about to kill other people. He was ready. His phone rings. He stops and goes, answers the phone. I'm going, I'm not sure a maniac killer would all of a sudden check to see about his car warranty. And as, as our kids have taught us, if nobody else has, you don't have to answer it. Because they don't. The one thing it's, we call it is the one thing we don't use it for, a phone. But then I thought of us, Christ before us, and we get distracted by rules, demands of conformity, statements of faith, signed confessions of faith, nomenclature. What are you going to call it? The Trinity or the Godhead? Or you're going to call this communion, the Eucharist, the Lord? What? And fights over that. I even know churches that have fought over whether you break the bread before or after the prayer or whether you break the bread at all. I have seen them divide. I've seen them divide over one cup or many individual cups. And I keep thinking, if there was a seminar on how to miss the point, you could give it. Thing is, I could have too, because I was wrapped up in that as well. Complicated bureaucracies, massive cathedrals, which were, which were made to glorify God. So I'm not saying that's sinful, but we got so distracted by everything ancient and modern when the Bible was just trying to tell us a story again and again and again, using every picture, every possibility. So I ask you to go through Advent asking this, is what I am doing with my life about meeting Jesus and being a part of his story, or have I gotten distracted? Have I gotten distracted by the, the fizzy, glittery things in the world, the shiny objects that blow past us? Or have I missed Jesus because I wasn't looking for him? Have I missed the angels because I wasn't looking for them? And have I missed the story because I wasn't in it? Oh, we're all in it. Just a lot of people don't know we're in it. So be aware you're in the story, the story of Jesus and the story of Advent. And we're going to leave it there for today. Jamie, uh, every now and then, gives me requests for songs. And I appreciate that. He likes some of the old songs. And there are times that I would have not thought about them or remembered them. This one's not an old song. Uh, it is actually a lot newer than people think. But it uses an old tune, an old shaker tune. Um, we've done it before here. I think that'll be all right. I never know what key it should be in. If it's not in the right key, you baritones take it. Um, <laughs> in fact, I've always called the song the Lord of the Dance. And when I looked it up, I found it was copyrighted under I Danced in the Morning. 
there are other songs that are copyrighted, Lord of the Dance, that I'd never heard of. But it takes the tune from an old uh, shaker hymn called Simple Gifts. And so you should know it. It has five verses, and we sing the chorus after every one. So the sermon was short for a reason. There you go. I danced in the morning when the world had begun. I danced in the moon and the stars and the sun.